You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we've got something special for you, the launch of a new mini-series. Last summer, in episode 100, we featured five professors who are teaching energy transition and asked them about some of the challenges they've experienced. And one thing that popped out from those conversations, which many of our subscribers reinforced, was a clear need for teaching the fundamentals of energy. Even some of our highly knowledgeable subscribers said that they thought it would be a good idea to do some shows on the basics, and that they wouldn't mind the occasional show with a geek rating of one. So starting today, we're doing it. This is the first set of three mini-episodes on the basic concepts of energy in what will become an ongoing occasional series. For those of you who find yourselves occasionally challenged to follow the conversation we have here, well, I hope these episodes will give you a bit more familiarity with the terms and the concepts of energy. And we'll be interspersing them with our more typical in-depth shows, so if you live for the episodes with high geek ratings, you'll find this mini-series to be an occasional departure from our normal programming. But whatever your reaction, I invite you to write to me with your feedback on what you think of this new miniseries. Now, I don't pretend to know the best way to teach energy transition, but I know that a lot of our listeners are actively seeking better ways of communicating it to a broader audience. So in the spirit of fostering further collaboration and participation, I'd like this mini-series on the energy basics to evolve with the input of educators among our subscribers. So if you are an educator with an introductory level syllabus that you'd like to share, please do email it to me. I'd love the input. And if you're a funder interested in supporting educational initiatives around energy, and you'd like to discuss how this mini-series can be expanded into something bigger, please do get in touch. For all of the above, just drop me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com. I should also note that because each of these mini-episodes are going to be only about 20 minutes long, I've decided to change their format. Instead of the typical show structure for the Energy Transition Show, these mini-episodes are going to be stripped down without the usual preamble and postscript and news and other goodies. They're not even really going to be an interview format. Instead, we're going to treat them like little lessons and just keep them short, focused, and to the point. But in keeping with our freemium business model, we're making the first of these three mini-episodes available to all while the second and third mini-episodes will only be available to subscribers. So let me introduce our teacher for this first set of mini-episodes. Dr. Paulina Jaramillo is a professor of engineering and public policy and the co-director of the Green Design Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, where she is involved in key multidisciplinary research projects to better understand the social, economic, and environmental implications of energy consumption and the public policy tools that can be used to support sustainable energy development and consumption. 
She was recommended to me by several alumni of the Energy Transition Show for this set of shows specifically, and I'm very pleased that she was willing to teach these topics for us. Also, since Carnegie Mellon has a site license to the Energy Transition Show, this miniseries could serve as an introduction to energy for students there who may not be taking energy classes, but who still want to develop a basic understanding of the subject. All right, with that out of the way, let's get started. What does using energy really mean? Whether you're using electricity to cook or gasoline to drive or you're charging your cell phone's battery, energy has to come from somewhere and go somewhere else. But after you use it, where does it go? Did it disappear? How do we find it in nature? Do we make energy? Do we consume it? Or do we just transform it? In this series, we're going to sketch out the basic concepts of energy and over the course of our Energy Basics series, start to build up an understanding of the ways in which today's energy system works. And once we have covered all the basics, we will return to this show's main objective, which is to point the way to transitioning to a more sustainable energy system. In the first part of these first three mini-episodes, we're going to start at the very beginning and simply ask what energy is. In the second part, we'll talk about how energy is converted from one form to another. And in the third part, we're going to look at the various sectors that use energy, how electricity and energy transition change the dynamics of fuel production and conversion, and take a brief first look at energy transition. With that introduction out of the way, now let's go to Dr. Jaramillo to describe the various forms of energy. So the two main forms of energy are potential energy and kinetic energy. Potential energy is energy that is stored in an object or it's based on the position of the object. So the common forms of potential energy are chemical energy, which is the energy that is stored in the bonds of the atoms and molecules. So petroleum, natural gas, coal, the fossil fuels that we're all familiar with are forms of chemical energy. Mechanical energy, which is another form of potential energy, is energy that is stored in objects that are in tension. So springs that are stretched or compressed have mechanical energy. The other form of potential energy you may have heard about is nuclear energy. And in nuclear energy, the energy stored in the nucleus of the atom, it's the energy that holds the nucleus together. And so the other form of potential energy is gravitational energy. And this one is energy that is stored in an object's height. And the most common example of gravitational energy is hydropower, where you have water that is stored at a height and then you move it through a turbine down and you recover that energy. Kinetic energy, which is the other high-level type of energy, is energy that is in motion. And so waves of electrons, molecules, substances in motion, those are kinetic energy. The most common ones are radiant energy, which is electromagnetic energy that travels in waves. Light is a form of radiant energy. Sunshine is a form of radiant energy. The next one is thermal energy, which is heat. And it's the energy that is caused by the vibration and movement of atoms and molecules within a substance. Next, we have motion energy, which is energy that is stored in the movement of objects. And then the faster the object is moving, the more energy is stored. Wind is an example of motion energy. Waves, tidal energy, that's also an example of motion energy. 
although we don't think of sound as a form of kinetic energy, it's also a form of kinetic energy, and it's the energy that is happening through waves, the substance longitudinal waves. So we don't typically think of sound as energy, but it is. And then finally, electrical energy, which I think a lot of people are familiar with because we use electricity and everything. It's a form of kinetic energy because it is particles, the electrons that are moving through a wire. And as they move, they have kinetic energy. As Dr. Jaramillo just explained, energy can exist in some form of storage for later release, which we call potential energy, and it can exist when something is moving or active, which we call kinetic energy. As you look around you in the world, you can see both forms everywhere. The gasoline in your car's tank has potential energy, while the car moving down the road has kinetic energy. Now we're going to move on to describing what energy is at its most basic physical level by looking at the laws of thermodynamics. That's the branch of physics that describes the relationships between matter and all forms of energy, including heat. Let's see how Dr. Jaramillo describes them. The three laws of thermodynamics are really critical for understanding energy. The first one, I think it's probably the simplest to understand because it thinks big picture and it deals with the total amount of energy in the universe. Specifically, it states that the total amount of energy in the universe does not change. So another way of saying that, and maybe the way people have heard this law explained, is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only change form or be transferred from one object to another. So sometimes it's referred to as the conservation law. The conservation of energy law, yes. So I think the words created or destroyed are critical here because I often hear people say about creating energy and I flinch because we, <laughs> we can't create energy right. or destroy energy. Right. Then the second law of thermodynamics says from the first law, we know that energy cannot be destroyed or created. Through the second law, we know that it can be transformed for useful forms to less useful forms. And basically, we're talking now about efficiencies. The second law talks about efficiencies. Every time there is a conversion from one form of energy to another one, you are losing some of the useful energy that was available to do work. Most often in the systems that we work with, the energy that we can no longer use as a result of a conversion process takes the form of heat. That's why you put a light bulb on and some of it is going into light, which is a form of useful energy, but some of it is lost as heat. So every time there is an additional conversion process in a system, you are using some of the useful energy. The other thing that the second law says is that energy that doesn't go to do work also increases the disorder of the universe, the randomness in the universe. And this degree of randomness or disorder in the universe is what you call entropy, which is also a critical part of the definition of the second law of thermodynamics. So just to summarize, the second law of thermodynamics says that every energy conversion process will increase the entropy of the universe and reduce the amount of usable energy available to do work. Right. Another way to think about the second law is that everything tends toward disorder. You start with a highly ordered form of energy and you use some of it and then it becomes sort of disordered. 
essentially by converting energy from one form to another, you're paying a tax in the form of some lost energy. And that's, that's because nothing is 100% efficient in terms of energy conversion. And so then the third law. The third law, which is a little bit more abstract, I think, it tells us that all molecular movement, which is energy, stops at a temperature we call the absolute zero temperature, which is something we can't contextualize absolute zero because that's zero Kelvin, which is a unit of temperature, which is the equivalent to negative 273 Celsius. No human has experienced absolute zero. But what the third law says is... Since the temperature is a measure of molecular movement, there cannot be a temperature that is lower than absolute zero. The other thing that we can get from this law is that as the temperature trends toward absolute zero in the universe, the entropy also starts moving towards zero, but never actually reaches zero. So is it the third law that we're thinking about when we talk about the heat death of the universe, that essentially everything stops and becomes right. cold? If everything stops, all motion stops in the universe, then you are also reaching absolute zero temperature. Right. But at its most basic level, like at the atomic level, what is energy? So the basic definition that you will find in every dictionary and every physics class is that energy is the ability to do work, which is a little bit abstract, but that's the definition. And that's why I often tell people to really think about the energy types we discussed before potential and kinetic energy. Now, in terms of like atomic level, this is where Albert Einstein did all this groundbreaking work and came up with the theory of relativity. And he showed that mass and energy are relative to each other. And so what that means is that any mass can be converted to energy and energy can be converted to mass. As Dr. Jaramillo just explained, energy at its most basic level is the ability to do work. And work essentially consists of moving energy around from one form to another. For example, when you heat water to make coffee, you might take energy in the form of electricity or natural gas and transform it into heat, and then use the hot water to make coffee. So now we can understand the concepts involved in taking energy in the form of a fuel, or sunshine, or wind, or water, and then moving that energy onto the power grid, and then moving it again into our homes and vehicles. And we can see, as the first law of thermodynamics tells us, that energy is never created or destroyed, but rather transformed and moved around. But before we move it around, we usually convert energy into something that makes it easier to transport, what we call an energy carrier. So to wrap up this first part, I asked Dr. Jaramillo to describe how to think about how we capture the energy that exists in nature and how we convert it into energy carriers. We have what we call primary energy, and this is the energy that is found in nature. It's in natural form that has not been subjected to any conversion or transformation process. So it is the energy containing the raw fuels that we think about, like the energy in coal, the energy in natural gas. Those are forms of primary energy. And the primary energy then serves as an input to a system so that you can use energy to do work. So you convert primary energy to more useful Forms of energy, like coal does not give you light. You have to transform the energy in coal to some other form of energy to get light. And so those transformation processes 
take us to what we call the energy carriers. And that's the energy that can be directly used to get light. And so the most known energy carriers are heat and electricity. You can convert primary energy to heat, and then the heat can be used for useful purposes, or you can convert primary energy into electricity, and then that is what you use in daily life to get useful things out of energy. Hydrogen is another energy carrier that we don't have much experience with actually interacting with hydrogen in our current energy system, but people may have heard a lot about the hydrogen economy. So if we think of energy carriers, primary energy as the form that is found in nature, and then energy carriers are what you convert that primary energy so that you can use energy. The most common is electricity. And electricity is a great energy carrier because it can be produced from many different sources of primary energy. We can use coal, natural gas, petroleum, biomass, all these forms that are found in nature. We can use them to generate electricity. Electricity can also be efficiently transported long distance and can be safely delivered to customers. And then it can be also used for many applications, like you use electricity for your computer and for light and for cooking. So it's very versatile energy carrier. The challenge we've had with electricity as an energy carrier is that it is very hard to store. And storage technologies that exist are relatively expensive still. And so the fact that we can't store electricity means that in our system, you have to generate electricity simultaneously to when you use electricity. And so, for example, for cars, historically, we haven't used electricity because you have to store the energy before you can use it to move the wheels. And the storage technologies haven't been as widely available. That is changing, of course. But that limitation of Electricity is also what has created interest in hydrogen because hydrogen is also a versatile energy carrier that can be generated from many sources. We can generate hydrogen from coal and natural gas and biomass, a lot of the same sources that you can use for electricity. It can be also transported and it is storable. You can actually store hydrogen in the form of a liquid or a gas. The reason we haven't used hydrogen more broadly is because the technologies to use hydrogen directly to do work have been less developed than the technologies to use electricity. And so what that means is you could store hydrogen and then convert it into electricity to use it for your house or to generate heat for industrial processes. But that means there's an additional conversion process because of what we learned earlier, the second law of thermodynamics says every time you have to undergo a conversion process, you're going to lose some useful energy. There's an inefficiency. So those are the big differences between primary energy and energy carriers. And I should also mention there are a few other energy carriers that are maybe a little more exotic that are potentially coming into play in the future. For example, with offshore wind, like if you're a long distance from shore and it just wasn't practical to install a long transmission line, you could use that wind turbine to synthesize ammonia from basically components in the air and then 
store that in a liquid form that could be later sent by ship to shore. So that would be another form of an energy carrier. And we can also do the same thing with like synthesizing methane or synthesizing methanol fuels and so on. Right. I mean, gasoline is also an energy carrier. Energy in its natural form is not found as gasoline. You have to go in a conversion process from crude oil to gasoline. The gasoline basically stores that energy and then is used in the car. So all these liquid fuels are typically also energy carriers. That concludes the first part of our Energy Basics mini-series. We learned about the various forms of potential and kinetic energy and what energy is at the most basic physical level. We reviewed the three laws of thermodynamics, which explain why we can't create or destroy energy, but only convert it from one form to another, like when we convert the potential energy in coal into the kinetic energy of heat by burning it, and why we always lose some energy when we convert it. And finally, we talked about why we convert energy from the forms in which it exists in nature to energy carriers that we can easily transport and use. In fact, using energy is all about converting it from one form to another. So that's what we're going to learn about in part two, because it has important implications for energy transition. We hope you've enjoyed this free mini-episode of the Energy Transition Show. This episode was part of a mini-series consisting of short, roughly 20-minute shows that are designed to teach the basics of energy. The other two mini-episodes in this set of three are only available to subscribers. Subscribers have access to our complete catalog of all shows, including our full-length shows, which are typically 60 to 90 minutes long, as well as our interactive transcripts, our extensive show notes, and other subscriber-only benefits. Our subscription podcast works in all all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. To hear the other episodes in this educational mini-series on the energy basics, as well as the rest of our catalog of full-length episodes, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Individuals can join for $60 a year or $6.99 a month. We also offer discounted subscriptions for students and professors, which you can find at energytransitionshow.com discounts. And institutions like universities and corporations can purchase site licenses to let everyone with an email in their domain access our full subscriber offerings. You can find those at energytransitionshow.com slash group options. The first 33 full episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free show, featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews, news, and educational series like this about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.